Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I am Tim here today in the Empty Frames studio with Lance. What's up, Lance? What is going on? The Empty Frames Crawl Space Studios nestled in Wormtown. Doing uh, doing pretty well over here. How are you? I'm well. We uh, have a really pretty awesome interview with uh, former FBI agent Bobby Chacon. And while Bobby Chacon wasn't uh, directly involved in the investigation for Mora, uh, we always like to get insight from law enforcement. This is a former FBI agent with just a, a wealth of knowledge and uh, just a vast amount of stories. We, After a little bit of technical difficulties, we, we had a conversation with him that probably could have gone on for another two hours or so. Easily. Yeah. And uh, hopefully he'll be at CrimeCon and we can meet him in person there. But uh, I know he was there last year and he does a little bit with CrimeCon. So that was kind of how we met him. So it's a really fun conversation and uh, really hope you enjoy it. And we just wanted to thank real quickly our very generous sponsors. Without them, this wouldn't be uh, possible. Uh, Stamps.com, RxBar, and Blue Apron. Also, be sure to check out our websites. We have crawlspacepodcast.com, fun stuff on there, informative stuff, mm -hmm. as well as uh, emptyframespodcast.com. In addition to moramuridoc.com. And check us out on social media. Also, we, we launched a new podcast this week. It's called Empty Frames. Check that out at empty underscore frames on Twitter. And one more quick reminder that the anniversary of Moore's disappearance is coming up February 9th. We will be doing a Facebook live event at 7 p.m. Eastern time with Julie Murray and Curtis Murray. So check out Facebook.com slash Doc at 7 p.m. Eastern and get your candle ready. We are going to do a synchronized candle lighting. There will be audio of that released as our next podcast episode. So thank you very much and please keep Mora in your thoughts. We've had a variety of guests on Missing Moore Murray, 
and uh, they all sort of run the gamut. Uh, some are directly related to the case, and some are uh, related uh, to, to law enforcement. So when we got the opportunity to speak to a retired FBI agent about uh, the circumstances of anything, any case, including this case, we're going to jump at it. So, yes, just extending you a long-winded thank you. No, thank you very much. I think the, guy, the work you guys have done on this case and um, to keep it in the spotlight and to keep it in the public consciousness is uh, is probably the most valuable thing that's happened to it. Uh, we know that from this case that, you know, um, information from the police has has been uh, few and far between and leads seem to have been few and far between. So really the thing that keeps cases like this going is um, – you know, things like your podcast that keep cases like this alive and, and the documentary that happened. Uh, and so and without those things, I knows where this case would be. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, I don't know if we really knew that that was going to happen right away, maybe until like episode 20-something, 30-something, and we realized that the more you talk about it, yeah, there are going to be mistakes that are made by us along the way, but hey, people are talking about it and... And, you know, we, we connect with uh, former U.S. Marshal Art Roderick, and we're connecting with Bobby Chacon now. So I'll, I know a lot of people yeah. might think that it's not related, but it's all related. Yeah, well, you know, we used to tell uh, when I worked with Bureau and we would respond to missing kids cases. Those are like more the active investigation. As the parents, stay out in front of the cameras as much as you can. As long as the media is going to camp out in front of your house, use them. Keep the case in the public eye. Keep the spotlight on the case. And that's the way things happen. That's the way leads come in. That's the way somebody sees something or hears something of value and reports it. Um, and it's just, a, you know, it's, a, it's such a useful tool. And sometimes in these colder cases, it's the only tool that's available. Right. Let's get uh, for anyone who doesn't know who Bobby Chacon is. Why don't we have uh, Bobby Chacon tell us who he is? I was a much younger man. I went to law school. I graduated from Hofstra University Law School. So I was a lawyer, and then I joined the FBI way back in 1987. Um, I became an FBI agent, and uh, I, I spent 27 years working as an FBI agent, and I was proud to say that I, I spent all 27 years at the working street level, street agent level. Um, so I worked cases my whole career. I did, never had the desire to raise my hand and go into management and climb the the corporate ladder within the FBI to go to FBI headquarters or anything like that. So um, I worked all 27 years as a street agent and working cases. The first half of my career approximately was as a lead investigator on cases, um, major international narcotics cases, um, uh, mafia case, Italian mafia cases in New York City. And then in the, towards the middle of my career, I transitioned into the forensic world and I became a forensic investigator for the FBI, I was trained by the FBI laboratory. And I be, actually began working directly for the FBI laboratory, but I stayed out in the field. And that actually led me to the underwater world. And um, so I developed the FBI's underwater forensic program which grew from the one dive team that I was on in New York, which was the only dive team in the FBI at the time. And we expanded that under the lab's desire to have more forensically trained underwater investigators within the FBI. And we created um, three or more dive teams. And now the program consists of four dive teams, New York, L.A., Miami and D.C. And those four teams divide up the world, really divide up the globe. Um, and each of those four teams has an area of responsibility, both domestically in the U.S. and overseas. 
um, and they'll respond to things like plane crashes or, you know, body recoveries. Um, like just my LA team was involved in the Lacey Peterson case years ago. Um, we were involved in the space shuttle crash in, in Texas in 03. We were involved in, um, I don't know if many people know the Israel Keys case, which, who was a serial killer and um, caught up in Alaska. Um, he had kidnapped and murdered a, a barista up in Alaska and, and uh, put her body under a frozen lake north of Anchorage. And so our dive team went out there and recovered her um, her body. And so, um, you know, so we did things like that. I, I've been to I've been to southern Iraq with the dive team, with the FBI dive team. Um during the way, I spent a year living in Athens, Greece. Um, when they took me away from forensics for a little while, I spent a year in Athens, Greece, helping the Greeks prepare for the uh, Summer Olympics of 2004, counterterrorism measures that we had done in Salt Lake in 2002. So I had some experience with that. So they um, they used that experience and sent me to Athens, Greece for a year. Um, then I came back to Los Angeles and uh, ultimately ran the dive team here until I retired in 2014. After retiring, um, I was lucky enough to I moved to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil um, with my wife and two rescue dogs where my wife was producing the uh, 2016 Summer Olympics. I was full time retired until about a year into that. Uh, I got a call from a, a retired FBI agent in Los Angeles, um, Jim Clemente, and he asked me if I was willing to come back to L.A. and be a technical advisor on a series called Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, which was a spinoff of the very popular Criminal Minds series. Um, our show starred Gary Sinise and um, our team, the, our show was a little different because our team, they called it Beyond Borders because we were the overseas team. So each week, instead of going to a city around the country like the regular Criminal Minds team does, we went to another country. Um, and and so they were working anywhere from Paris one week to Tokyo the next week and stuff. So that was our series. Unfortunately, that, that lasted only two seasons and, and got canceled. But um, during that same time, being back and forth from Brazil, now we're back full time in um, in Los Angeles. I became involved through that endeavor with some true crime shows. So I started working on shows like uh, I Married a Murderer and Murderous Affairs and Deep Undercover and Corrupt Crimes. There's just a whole number of uh shows that people might see me on in front of the camera giving, you know, commentary about the cases and stuff. Recently, um, I was on a show that's going to premiere, I think, on the Science Channel in a couple of weeks called Deadly Intelligence, which is about a bunch of their real true crime shows, cases where scientists met suspicious ends um, while working on some secret government project. And so we had a whole we had a dozen cases we highlighted of scientists who, you know, uh, a strange looking suicide, which we think wasn't a suicide, things like that, where scientists have met their ends um, under suspicious circumstances. I just did an episode of Hunting Hitler on History Channel, which is uh, based on 700 declassified documents from the FBI from years ago. And uh, Bob Baer of the CIA and his team took all that information and they went on a, a trek across from, from Berlin uh, through Norway, ultimately to Argentina, to track this supposed uh, trail of Hitler escaping. They brought me in to review all the evidence that Bob and his team had amassed during that season, season three. And um, and I kind of turned a critical eye to it. I kind of tested their evidence and said what I believed to be valid, what might not be, and things like that. And then just last week, I 
put a, I, I played a similar role. They called me in to do a case, something called the unsolved on discovery ID. It's a new show. Um, and, uh, I, it, that was about uh, a wrongfully convicted gentleman, a security guard that was convicted of rape and murder of a young girl. And he spent 11 years in jail before he was exonerated. And, uh, so I took a look at that case and stuff like that. I just did, that was a one episode of that case. Um, other than that, this week is uh, something called Real Screen in uh, in Washington D.C. and I've got two different production companies there pitching uh, true crime shows that uh, have me attached as host. So hopefully, the next time we talk, I'll be hosting my own show. So that is quite an accomplished career, uh, Bobby. Pr- pretty pretty flattering um, that you're uh, you're willing to talk to us. Um, <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, uh, I'm just curious when you sleep. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh, you know, I got, you know, I'm writing now in a career like now, it's pretty, um, it's pretty easy. I mean, I, I sit at this computer all day writing and then a CNN will call or MSNBC or Fox will call and say, can you run over to the studio and talk about the Russia investigation? Or can you, you know, Ashley Banfield's show will call from New York and say, can you come on crime and justice and talk about, you know, a murdered mom found caught up into two suitcases. And I, you know, I run over to the studio and do that. And there's minimal preparation for stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, I just, I've always been an active guy. You know, that's why probably why I didn't go into management while I was in the FBI. I never wanted to sit behind a desk or, uh, or push papers around, but it seems I'm doing more of that now. Uh, than I ever did before. Uh, I, I, I certainly wear a suit now a lot more than I ever did in my FBI career. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, that's just a function I'd never went into management, never wanted to. But, um, yeah, we find the time. I've got two rescue dogs that are watching me right now. And <laughs> nice. One we brought back from Russia and uh, when my wife was producing the Olympics there. And she actually emailed a picture of a dog from South Korea this morning, which is where she is now producing the Olympics. And I just said, look, no way. Just don't even think about it. <laughs> so you've got she three dogs. Bring... So you got three rescue I've dogs got... now. <laughs> yeah, apparently. I'm waiting to see. I, I, I'm curious how you go from lawyer to FBI agent. You, you made it sound so seamless. It's like, oh, I was a lawyer and then I was an FBI agent. Like, uh, how, how does that process happen? Well, surprisingly enough, that's quite common. Well, it was quite common back then. The FBI, a hundred and... I don't know, 15 years ago, whenever we were born, um, in 1908, I believe. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a part of the Justice Department and the attorney general um, in Washington had no federal aid. There were no federal agents out there. There were revenue agents in the IRS. That was about it. And so the, the, the birthplace of the FBI was within the Justice Department. He took a young Justice Department lawyer and he said, you need to set up a group of agents that are actually working out in the field that 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 young Justice Department lawyer was J. Edgar Hoover. And he recruited a bunch of other Justice Department guys, younger guys, who then kind of started living in different cities and become investigators. So the tradition of the FBI really was you couldn't become an FBI agent back in the day unless you were a lawyer or an accountant. Oh, right. And that that traditional history carried on. Even my class in 87, 1987, was probably 50 to 60 percent attorneys and or accountants um much less now um with the advent of computers we need a lot more computer scientists um, language capabilities um and the fbi has not only that it's always addressed its needs through the recruitment process so whatever it needed at the time 
but it also started recognizing around the same little bit slower than society in general. But the FBI also just, you know, started realizing that diversity within its workforce is a strength. And so it started recruiting people from much different backgrounds and stuff. And so right now, if you walked into an academy class in Quantico, it probably looks a whole lot different. But back when I was went through, it wasn't uncommon for attorneys. In fact, I went to law school thinking I was going to go into the NYPD because that's where my brother and my father both were. And um, and my father actually is the one that encouraged me to go into the FBI. Um, they came around at a recruiting day at a law school, which they often do. Um, because they still like attorneys to go in as agents. Um, and so I filled out an application in law school, and, and two years later I was in Quantico. Wow, that's a, that's impressive. Um, I love the idea that you founded a uh, – you, you were one of the founders, or were you the founder of the Underwater Forensic Unit? Well, there was people before me who started this dive team in New York, but it was basically confined to New York and it wasn't really under the auspices of the FBI laboratory. So we really weren't forensically trained. So when I came on the team in, in 95, 1995, the first big job we had was TWA Flight 800. where We lost 230 people on the ocean. Um, we were kind of a really learning as we went along. And it was about 1999 that the FBI laboratory took notice of the work we were doing and said, look, we really need to kind of get you guys underneath because forensic science, you know, is really starting to explode now with DNA and all this stuff. Unless you have that kind of background and somebody like the FBI laboratory kind of backing you up, your credibility is not going to be there. The team leader that had the team when I was there, he didn't want to go full-time diver. He wanted to, he was doing his other job and, and he dove part-time and he, and he came to me and he said, look, would you want to leave your kind of investigative world behind that you've been doing for 15, 20 years and could become a full-time diver? And, you know, and so I jumped at the chance and I was the first full-time diver in FBI history. That means I went to the FBI laboratory. I got forensically trained in all the same uh, methodologies that are regular crime scene people use when they go into a house or a car or any general crime scene. Never really applied those skills the way they do because I was only learning those as they applied to underwater. But I went through the whole course that they go through. um, And then I started building the other three uh, dive teams, basically, you know, duplicating what we had done in New York. Um, And then uh, it took me about two to three years. I had a very good friend who was a supervisor at the FBI laboratory um, uh, with me, and he was assigned to the lab where he worked full time in the evidence response team unit. But he was a non-diver, so he was a, a very good crime scene guy. Um, I was the diver; he was the crime scene guy, and the two of us kind of, uh, you know, merged our, our expertise and built the program. That's impressive. That's impressive. It Thanks. kind of puts things into perspective when. Um... Tim and I are proud of uh, our crawl space studios here. <laughs> not, not quite the same. Yeah, not, not exactly, yeah. but uh, we're getting there. Let's talk about the Moramari case a little bit. Uh, have you uh, worked on missing person cases in, in the FBI? You know, I have. Yes, I have. Most of them were the, you know, the standard cases that you hear about um, where, you know, a child goes missing or, you know, a child, I talk anywhere from five to 15 
usually are 16 upper teens. Because um, once they're over 18, obviously, then it becomes a different ball game because now you're talking about adults and whether they ran away or a victim of foul play becomes an issue, right? Um, but most of the ones where I was involved in were missing kids. Um, you know, you go out into the field, you lock arm in arm or you stand a couple of feet away, you walk through the woods. I was part of a number of, you know, efforts like that. And the FBI brings to bear and can bring to bear. That's one of the things we bring to the table is like hundreds of agents at a moment's notice, drop everything they're doing and drive two or three hundred miles. And everybody gets together and you do these massive searches. So, yes, I was involved in those, you know, from the dive team standpoint, from the forensic standpoint, usually when we were called in, um, they knew where the body was or had a very strong indication of where the body was. So although, you, you know, we went into it, what most people thought was still a missing persons case, I'll use the Samantha Koenig case in Alaska as an example. When we flew into town that, you know, that Sunday morning, um, the entire town was still out looking for her. You know, I, I remember that night, you know, we flew in late. I stopped at a fast food restaurant in the drive through. They still had her her picture there posted there. There were billboards around town um, still looking for still holding out hope. We flew up because the on Saturday, the investigators had a breakthrough and Israel Keys told them where the body was. So we checked into that hotel, eight FBI agents or 10 FBI agents with a lot of gear. And, you know, the hotel clerk is going, wow, all these FBI agents, you know, you must be here for the Samantha case or whatever. We can't say anything because we arrive on scene and, you know, the entire town and the family still has hope. We know that hope is gone. And our job is to find that person, bring them back and kind of snuff out that hope and put everybody on back on the road to recovery. So missing, yes, but oftentimes when we were called in, we knew that the person wasn't, you know, missing really anymore. And it was our job to go bring them back. Well, what's your uh, your takeaways from um, the investigation into Moore's disappearance from when it uh, first uh, you know, when the when the police first arrived on on scene to today, do you have? I know that's a huge question. Yeah, no, there's there's certain there's certain elements of this case that make it inherently difficult and different from a lot of other cases that we talk about and that we've experienced. Um, like I just said, with missing children, it's a lot different because everybody turns out. You know, when there's an adult missing, it, you know, it takes one notch below the urgency, you know, because this is an adult, maybe they ran away. So you don't have that sense of urgency. It's not an eight-year-old child that all of a sudden is missing from their bedroom. <clears throat> so the urgency there is different. And then and you, you know, the way this whole case has started was simply a broken down car on the side of the road. Well, you know, that happens a million times every day in the United States. How many times today are police officers rolling up on a car that's simply seemingly abandoned, right? So, it's not treated as a crime. You couldn't possibly treat every car that they rolled up on as a crime scene. Right. And we know that, you know, there are times when unless you approach it from a crime scene from the very beginning, valuable things can be lost. And um, it's through no fault of anybody in a case like this, because you can couldn't possibly, you know, every abandoned car on the side of the road stop and, and conduct a crime scene on it. Right. And so, you know, there were there, those are the, the little kind of things that this case had that that kind of resulted in what we're seeing now in valuable time lost 
you know, maybe value of opportunities lost. But, you know, I don't really it's hard to find fault in in some of them and some of them. Yes. And some of them. No. In this case. And so I think in this case, you know, it's uh, it's it's a huge, a huge mystery. And it's one that kind of draws me in because you just like normally my investigate there's more clues to go on. There's more things to find. However, you know, in talking to agents and detectives across the country that are in cold case units and, you know, and do missing persons cases for a living full time, you know, there is a scary amount, a disturbing amount of missing people in this country that just go unaccounted for most of them women, unfortunately. Um, And so, you know, there. This this is just. Uh, it's almost like uh, the scourge of our time. It's like an epidemic. It's like the plague, and and you know, there's just not enough resources to put into all of these cases. Now, you know, somebody could say the majority of them are runaways or or uh, people that they're adults that just don't want to be found anymore or whatever. But you know, for each one of them, there's families somewhere or friends or or some somebody that's missing them and needs to you know know what happened to them, but. Yeah. But in this case, like I said, it's just there's just there's so little to go on in this case that that it's it's a, it's a it presents a real tough one. Yeah, um, I, I we, we actually were talking about that just recently, like, um, you know, the the idea that the, the police in Haverhill uh, came upon this this car and and we understand it makes sense because it's not a crime yet. There's no evidence that this is a crime. You can't treat it as a crime. If you did, you'd lose one or two guys out of your four-person force. But it got, right. but it got us thinking. Like, it could there, like, so okay, so there's this gray area between um, th- th- that isn't a missing persons case yet because no one has reported it. It's not 24 hours, and right. there's this car or there's this emptiness. Is there some protocol that can be created that is some kind of like that fits inside that gray area? Because we also work on the Brianna Maitland case and really a similar it's a very similar situation where there was a, a, a car find, found on the side of the road. And the woman, 17 year old uh, female, is gone and has been gone for almost the exact same amount of time as Maura Murray. Um, so it just it got us talking it. Is there some kind of protocol that ought to be created or logistically could be created to fill this gray area? You know, I don't know that there is because and I hate to say it's a resource issue, but it, 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 it could boil down to being a manpower and resource issue. And in, in this respect, we know that, like, if if every town had enough cops to do every single job, you know, then it would be fine. Right. And you don't want to say, well, you, you know, this is a, a young girl and you just can't say that you don't have the resources. But, you know, you have to back up and you're not looking at it from uh, the missing girl perspective. You're looking at it from the abandoned car on the side of the road perspective. And so, um, you know, it's it's tough. But looking in, in, in hindsight, you know, you say, oh, we should have done this car, we should have that car. But like, you know, I don't know if they even keep statistics on how many, you know, abandoned cars, you know, on the side of the road were, you know, were uh, interacted with by police officers around the country today. Um, it's probably in the hundreds, if not thousands. And so, you know, and, and, you know, it's probably, you know, that case, this particular case, it could have been, you know, she walked back, you know, three miles to find a phone 
or a diner that she had just been in to use the phone to call AAA to have them come because she couldn't get cell coverage. You know, there's so many different things that happen to deploy resources. And let me tell you, like, I used to say this for the dive teams and why the FBI only has four dive teams. I used to argue with a lot of field offices out there, Chicago and Houston, wanted their own dive teams. And I said, look, having a, a forensic, a very well-trained forensic team, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes training, and it takes money. And so we decided in the FBI that these four regional teams would cover the rest of the country and provide services to all the other field offices because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for all those other because the FBI has 56 field offices. That means 52 field offices do not have dive teams, four do. And it doesn't make economical sense for them to stand up a dive team, equip it, then train it, and keep them proficient in the forensic, the underwater forensic methods that they'll need to do if they only have one or two dives a year. Um, so by those four teams sharing the workload across the country, they're working all the time. So those perishable skills are always fresh. And so forensic teams do require to do it right. You have to do it often and, and to do it often takes a lot of money and time and experience. And if you're in a small town, you know, and, and you get a crime scene, you got to find the crime scene kit. You may have gone to school five years ago and you have got to look in the basement of the, of the police station and, and blow the dust off the crime scene kit because now you're going to go out and do a crime scene. Well, you know, we've seen that's not always the best way to prosecute a crime scene, you know, effectively. And so, um, you know, to treat each of these cases. Now, the you know, protocols might be to freeze the car and not let anybody in, but it's it's tough. It, it's a tough, you know, this is just such a common occurrence. A, a car on the side of the road is just such a common occurrence that, um, you know, I don't know. I don't. I, I would be, you know, I would like to say that, you know, you know, they, we should be able to find the money um, to have teams do that. But, I, you know, I mean, just governments, especially small you know, local municipalities and, and even counties and states, there's, there's always a struggle for resources that, you know, you can't tax the citizens into oblivion just so you can fund all of these different things. And, and so it becomes a matter of, you know, desiring where your money needs to go there. You know, there are, you know, after school programs, there are lunch programs for children who can't afford to bring lunch to school. You know, there are a lot of different you know, things that mayors struggle with and, and county executives struggle with on where to put their resources. And, and this would just be one of those, you know, tough calls. And you also have to take into account the human element when you're a police officer and you arrive on the scene and it's an abandoned vehicle and you might, you know, see some sort of like maybe a, a indication that the driver was drinking. And, it, you know, you just go to the catalog of, of uh, knowledge that you have based on experience, which is, OK, they probably wandered off and they're going to come back when they're a little bit more sober uh, to avoid the drunk driving charge. Um, but from what you said, right. the the. Our, the response that Tim and I get a lot is what you just said, where there's a lot, you know, there's there's not even a statistic of how many abandoned cars are found on the side of the road. I don't want to get into like <laughs> like using words that shouldn't be used, but that sounds like an epidemic of abandoned cars. So when does a protocol become necessary? It, it you know, it becomes necessary when you can start tying those cars to actual crimes. Gotcha. But if ninety nine point nine percent of those car, cars are just simply abandoned because either they were stolen or because they were broke and somebody came back with a tow truck to, to pick it up. Or, you know, you have, you know, if you had it where it becomes an epidemic is if like a bunch of people, you know, never claimed them, you know, and, and you start, but in the, probably the vast overwhelming majority of times, there's a 
a, a reasonable explanation of why that car was there or abandoned there. Right. And, you know, and, and it, it may take a day. It may take three days you know, five days, depending on where you are and the circumstance of the, of that particular car, uh, when the police, you know, resolve that situation. And that's why probably almost always those situations are resolved. Now, we happen to know that there were some uh, searches of some underwater searches in the Maura Murray case. Um, oh, really? Yeah, French Pond, which is pretty close to the uh, crash site. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we know that that was searched, um, but we don't know anything more. Obviously, they didn't find Mora um, because sure. that we would have known. But I guess my question is, like, how intensive... W would a dive team search of a local pond be? And I don't know if, if uh, you know, one of your teams did it from the FBI or not or who did it exactly. Um, but, like, is there any chance that she, Maura Murray, is still there? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, during my time in the FBI dive program, I interacted, and part of my job, in the, especially in the early years, was going and talking to the U.S. Navy, to agencies like NOAA, and EPA who had federal dive teams already in place and commercial diving, scientific diving and universities. So I took a best practices and, and kind of put our program together based on, you know, all of the modern techniques and technology uh, that all of these other agencies and, and uh, institutions were using. Um, I brought that to the law enforcement forensics and I, you know, we were when I started, I, I, I would say we were at the forefront of that and in the law enforcement world. I would say certain big cities like NYPD, LAPD, Long Beach PD and here in California have kind of met us. They've kind of come up to that with a lot of after 9-11, with a lot of Homeland Security money, a lot of cities, their dive teams really got beefed up and stuff. So they have the technology now. The but the thing that remains is across the country in law enforcement and diving, you have a tremendous variation in the amount of diving these people do, the skills they have, the techniques they use, and their proficiency. And so um, it really depends on who did the diving to, to make that kind of uh, statement. I mean, I was constantly being asked to spearhead and lead federal uh, committees on st standardizing across the country law enforcement diving and forensic diving. And we just could never get we could never get it done because you don't have an overriding authority. Um, like in the fire world, I, I even talked to firemen in the fire world. They have a uniform fire act uh, where a lot of the, the fire codes are nationwide and your fire department has to meet those codes. And you have some of that in the law enforcement world, but not in the, in the diving world. So you still have a lot of diving sheriff's dive teams that are made up of volunteers and they're not law enforcement, not friends to be trained. So you know, there's a wide variation of, of capabilities, you know, across the law enforcement spectrum as far as underwater forensics goes. I wouldn't even call most of those teams under, underwater forensic teams. They're just dive teams. And that's that's a big difference. Gotcha. And so it really would depend on who searched that pond. I mean, I always said when I left a job, I said, if, if we didn't find what we we're looking for in the water, it was because it wasn't there. And one of the things we one of the benefits we had was the FBI always gave us enough time to do it. My bosses would simply say, how much time do you need? Whereas I know like when I worked with certain other departments, their their dive teams were given like three, three days to do it because some of their deputies were 
pulled off a road patrol. So other deputies had to be called in to cover their road shifts because now you get over those deputies have to get overtime because the other guy's diving. So the sheriff goes, you know, hey, I, the clock's ticking. I can't have these guys diving for a week or two because it, it, I, I don't, they've got to get back on their road patrol. So you run into situations like that. And in the forensic world of diving, you can do something quick. You can do something quick or you can do it thoroughly, but you can't do both. You know, the faster you move, the less thorough you're going to be, the more chance you're going to have to miss something. And so, you know, the, the benefit we had in the FBI and why I thought we were the best didn't necessarily come from we were the best divers or we had the best equipment or anything like that. It was really time. The Bureau always gave us an unlimited amount of time to conduct the job that we needed to do. And so we could go slow and methodically and do it right. Um, we weren't any better divers. We didn't have any better gear than some of the teams. We had a lot. We had good gear. Don't get me wrong. And some of the other teams matched what we had. Um, but we were no better divers. I'm not saying we were better divers. I'm just saying time is of the essence. And if you have the time to do it right, then you go slow and methodical and less chance that you're going to miss something. So, I, you know, I would have to know who, you know, who dove that pond and stuff and depth of the pond, the size of the pond, you know, to 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 make that determination on. But certainly, you know, I know dive teams and I, I will I'll be the first to admit there was at least one dive in my career that I know we messed up and I probably I messed up and I didn't put my divers in the right place in the in the body of water that they needed to search. And we missed it. And another dive team went in there much later, a year later, maybe, and found what we had been looking for the year prior. And that, that one job haunts me to, to this day and probably always will um, because I, I, it, was, it was all on me. And, um, but, yeah, things can be missed even by really good dive teams. Now, would you ever uh, take a consulting role as far as uh, with local law enforcement if they had their uh, volunteers of uh, divers pull up evidence and you would uh, would you ever go into the evidence room and look at this evidence that was taken from the bottom of a lake or something to determine, uh, you know, if you could get any forensics off of it? That wasn't even my role on the FBI team. So as a dive team, what we would do is we would, you know, we would train with our laboratory personnel, not only our agents back at the, the laboratory, but the technicians and the lab technicians and the scientists who are going to apply the science. And really what we did, what our job was, was to gather the evidence and keep it in a state that the scientists tell us would be best for them. Because ultimately, all the evidence that we gathered goes back to the to Quantico, to the FBI laboratory, so the scientists there can whatever, do whatever they do with it. Our responsibility was locating it in a way that the detectives and the prosecutors could make the maximum value of it and then protect the evidence in a way that we were told by the scientists would help them, you know, process it later on. So that's keeping it in the same water. For instance, I used to see local teams, you know, take, take this, take a gun, say, and it's in a muddy kind of container of water and they can't see it. So they dump all that water out and put it with clean water. Now you've oxidized the weapon and now you're going to have de degradation of any evidence that was on that weapon. So we, our lab technicians always told us, keep it in the same water that it's found in and actually keep some of the soil around it on the bottom of whatever body of water you're in with it and ship all of that to us. And I've had agents actually get on a plane holding the evidence. Most of the time we can ship it, but there were different cases that we needed to fly it ourselves back to the lab. But so we didn't. So I would advise certain dive teams on occasion on how to collect the evidence, but I would urge them to talk to their state crime lab 
and they're scientists and they're forensic scientists that were going to actually take those that piece of evidence and subject it to some kind of scientific process. Talk to them, the people that are going to ultimately be doing that, and ask them how they want this evidence treated, how they want it packaged, how they want it collected. Um, there are certain things you have to do before you collect it to document it for the prosecutors on one end, and then there's the certain things you have to do when you collect it so that the scientists have the maximum capability of exploiting whatever evidence might be on that that object. We didn't apply scientific methods too much to the evidence. Like if there's a gun and we suspected it might contain a fingerprint, and by the way, we could get fingerprints on weapons that were in the water for nine or 10 months now. So um, if we thought there was a fingerprint on that weapon, we wouldn't be the ones to dry that weapon and dust it with, 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 with print dust, even though that's something our dry land counterparts can do. Our, our, the FBI's, uh, my counterparts in the, in the dry land world, um, we wouldn't do that. We would keep it in the water, send it to the lab. They would then take it out in a controlled laboratory setting so that the drying process wouldn't destroy whatever evidence might be there. We, if we were to do that, we might destroy evidence, but at least it's in the lab in a controlled environment. So, you know, we'd have to be very careful with that. There seems to be some misconception that when you have committed a crime and you want to dispose of uh, potential evidence, you throw it in a lake or, you know, you put it in a bag with a rock and you drown it in a lake. Um, what you're saying is there's a really good chance that things that are pulled from the bottom of a lake could be recovered. There could be some forensics taken off of them if handled properly. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, we used to cringe in, in the business when you'd see pictures in the local paper or sometimes video on a local news show where a diver comes out of the water and he just holds triumphantly holds the gun up out of the water that they found it. You know, and we, we would cringe and go, oh, boy, you can't do that. Once the gun, you know, touches air, now you've got oxidation process starting and that, you know, there's all kinds of things forensically that can degrade any evidence that might be on that weapon. Now, what I what we did at the FBI lab we had our scientists, the benefit of being so attached to the lab is we went there and we had them actually dig trenches and they made like four, I mean, I think they were up to six or eight bodies of water, like little bodies of water in, on the lab grounds. And they put, you know, different types of water in there and they put weapons with fingerprints on it. And we did a study on how long you could still get prints off of a weapon. And so, you know, of course you have things that, that impact that, like fresh water versus salt water warm water versus cold water, still water versus moving water, right? So all of those things we had the lab testing and stuff. So, um, you know, we were pretty far advanced. You know, that's the th types of things we were looking at, um, you know, in the FBI underwater forensic program. And so, um, you know, to, to benefit from the divers. But certainly, you know, anything found underwater you want to preserve as best you can and as quickly as you can get it to the lab so they can, you know, you know apply whatever scientific techniques they're going to to exploit any evidence that might be left. It's, that's the one difference with underwater crime scenes versus above-water crime scenes is that the above-water crime scene folks get to do a lot more of the, you know, procedures and processes themselves, you know, outside of the lab setting where, you know, the dive teams, we were almost strictly, you know, tag and bag, you know, and transport type of, of activity. There was very little processes that we can bring to bear on the evidence that we collected because of the place that we found it and it had it should be it should be kept in that environment as long as you can 
and get it to the scientists. And so, you know, it was, you know, we in the FBI, we shared a warehouse with our dryland counterparts and they had like a mini laboratory that they could do certain field work there. We really didn't have that because we, we had to concentrate on staying alive in the environment where we we're collecting the evidence. But once we collected it, we had to get it to the lab as soon as possible. There was very little that we could do to, to prosecute that piece of evidence, you know, scientifically. Gotcha. Good answer. Yeah. Thank you. Now, when we spoke on the phone, we talked a little bit about uh, what possible outcomes happened uh, to Maura Murray, and you were pretty low on the uh, the idea of a suicide. Can you uh, go into that a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't have any earmarks of, of a suicide to me, in my mind. Um, and this is just, you know, completely my own opinion. And um, and I'm not a psychologist, you know, so so right off the bat. But in, in my experience, you know, it doesn't have, you know, the hallmarks of a suicide, you know. And, and one of the things that, that – and there's been one particular case, actually an FBI agent committed suicide here in Los Angeles um, several years ago where he actually went up and kind of tried to hide himself in the Santa Monica Mountains. And he did. And we didn't find him for, I don't know, several months. And we had, you know, the whole law enforcement community in Los Angeles turned out to, to try to find him. And it was an ex- extensive search. And he just walked out of his house. So the, the area of search kind of was defined, pretty well defined. And it still took us, you know, months and months to find him. But he had gotten himself way back in a ravine that couldn't be seen from the air and things. So it was a sad, tragic case. Um, but even there where you had someone, you know, deliberately trying to hide their location when they committed suicide, you know, they were found several months later. It's really, you know, to to think that she could have killed herself and not been found by now and not been discovered, her body, it's really, you know, it's it's odd for me to think of. Um, to, even we had, we had actually a suicide underwater where, you know, a woman chained herself to, uh, to Cinderbox and threw herself in the water. So she, and she locked it so she couldn't, um, you know, she couldn't reverse her decision when she was at, at the bottom of this lake. Um, of course, when we found her, she had there was evidence that she tried to free herself, but she chained herself too too well to um, to, to for that to work. But um, so you know, you normally when someone commits suicide, they're not you know they don't go to that great extent to hide you know hide themselves from you know from being found. And so I, I would really find it unusual. And you know, the family, you know, talking to the family. It didn't seem like she was that, you know, she was that despondent, uh, you know, although, you know, there was obviously some disruption in her life, you know, to cause her to go on that journey, you know, that night. But it didn't seem like a suicide journey to me. And it didn't seem, you know, I think that her relationship with her sister and her relationship with her dad, I think even if she was to that point, I think she would not have wanted them, you know, to be in this in this this state of never knowing. Um, it it just doesn't fit I mean, to me. Like I said, to me, the suicide scenario just doesn't fit for for those number of reasons. Number one, I don't think she could have hidden herself so well that she would never be found. Um, and number two, I don't think she, you know, would have done that to her father. Uh, and number three, I just I, I don't think that the the other evidence surrounding this situation lead to to that that step. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um... A lot of uh, locals and a, and a lot of people in this community have uh, 
you know, made a call for FBI involvement in the case. And just speaking from your experience in the FBI, is this a realistic or even a, a useful thing to uh, to put your energy into, you know, signing a petition um, and, and asking the FBI to get involved in a case like this? What's your opinion on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, sure, it never hurts to, you know, because the FBI is, you know, somewhat sensitive to, you know, to, you know, the public. I mean, we serve the public. That's what we do. And and so, you know, whenever you can get the more support like that, and it could lead to maybe, you know, a local politician joining the effort and stuff. Because I know, as you know, as part of the dive team, there were a couple occasions where, you know, our, our involvement was because some congressman called, you know, uh, the FBI director and said, hey, you know, can you help with this? And, you know, and the local place that they dive team tried and we don't think, you know, they have the capability and whatever. And those kind of things that we are response to very, very well. And so, yeah, it never hurts to try to uh, it certainly wouldn't be in vain. I mean, I think that there would be a, you know, a, a valid look at it um, in this kind of case. The problem is, you know, normally if we're brought in earlier, we can bring some resources to bear as you know, technology and, and stuff that the, the, the Bureau has. In this case, it would really be more of like a fresh look at it. It would be a fresh look at the evidence. And, and the FBI is not the only ones that can do that. But, you know, I've always found in working some of the cold cases that I worked, it, it sometimes it takes somebody from the outside who knows nothing about it to re-educate themselves from day one in a case. And you might see things through a different lens, from a different perspective, um, that the original case agents who or case detectives that have been on this for so long have have simply, you know, not glossed over anything, but sometimes it just, you know, even cases that I was stuck on, sometimes, you know, I would bring in somebody else with a fresh set of eyes to look at things. And I don't think it ever hurts to have that. And so I, I just think that it's been so long and the physical evidence, you know, um, is just not there to kind of, you know, re reevaluate or whatever. I think the benefit of having an, an FBI presence in, in this case would be to have, you know, a whole new set of eyes looking at it from a different perspective, a different angle, and seeing if they can see something from that different angle. We have very experienced cold case agents that that's all they do. So they know, you know, like common areas to start in a cold case, what to look for. It's a little different than starting, you know, a regular case. It's really refreshing to hear you say that because we have a lot of people who will say, you know, well, the FBI isn't going to allocate funds and manpower. You know, it's silly to do a, uh, you know, sign a petition and try to get as many signatures. It's a wasted effort. So to hear it is uh, is really refreshing. Um, yeah, the, no, I mean, yeah, like I said, I mean, like, I mean, they they respond. I mean, it, I think that, you know, it, it would help if you got like, you know, local local politicians involved because, you know, that's that's more of a pipeline to it. If you could get, you know, if you can get enough petition, enough names on a petition to have a congressman take a look at the case and then he writes a letter to the bureau asking for help. I mean, that would that's that's happened before. I, I happen to be involved in in several cases that that grew out of just that type of situation. There you go. So there's your call out to the. Uh Local politicians, the congressmen, uh, congresswomen, uh, hey, community up there, why don't you write to your uh, local politicians and see if they can get involved. So in in your opinion, Mora wasn't suicidal. Um, what do you think happened to Mora? I think she walked away from that car and someone... You know, it's hard to say, but in my in my gut, someone was, was an opportunistic 
situation that someone wandered by and and either gave her a ride or offered her some assistance and um and I realize full well in saying that that the the bus driver um did just that or is alleged to have done just that and she turned him down and stuff so um you know so I think it might have been an opportunistic uh person that came along and whether they had intentions to do it you know, initially when they slowed down or not, or whether that intention developed as they spent a little time with Mara, I don't know. It's impossible to tell. Um, but I think someone someone picked her up and drove her somewhere, and, and, and she met her ends wherever they took her. That's just my gut. Is there um, – I know this is off the top of your head, and, uh, and I don't know if this is exactly the stuff you do, but is there some kind of profile of someone who would have – been the person who picked her up that you can think of? Um, yeah, that's, you know, I, I'm not a profiler myself, but I work with profilers all the time. And I, like I said earlier, Jim Clemente is kind of my mentor in this business and he's a pro- very prolific profiler. So I would kind of leave that kind of thing to them. Um, but from my experience working with them, you know, I can almost sometimes, you know, kind of anticipate what they would tell me on that. And, you know, um, certainly it would be someone who has a history of, of doing this. It's not something somebody does for the first time. It's, it's, and then when I mean a history, it may, may not be the first time they murdered someone. I mean, it may be the first time they murdered someone, but they have a history of odd behavior. You know, they may have been, you know, arrested for uh, stalking someone or molesting someone when they were younger or whatever, or things like that. So they probably have some, minor criminal history they probably have you know you know and, and in, in their background because that kind of person who can pick up you know a young woman off the street or young stranger and and do anything like that to her um conceivably do that to her um would be somebody who has had that kind of background and you know it could be not their first murder but it could also I'm not saying it's a serial killer or anything like that i'm just saying that um you know it, they probably progressed to that point in their in their criminal behavior that um, they have some kind of past in the system that, you know, once you, you know, once they're ultimately found, then you go back and you go, oh, yeah, look, he's got a criminal history in doing, you know, things that led up to and progressed to the point where, you know, he ultimately took someone off the street and killed them. So, um, you know, I, it's, that's, that's my, you know, very untrained, uneducated, you know, t- attempt at profiling somebody like that. that okay. Done that. Cool. Thanks. Um so th- this person has, you know, this theoretical person has gotten away with the, this theoretical crime for almost 14 years now. Right. What, what's going on with that person now that makes them still not get arrested for other things? Or I, I'm right. trying to sense right. where I'm going. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with the question. But yeah, let me because uh, this might be part of the same question yeah. I was going to ask. If what if who you're describing is somebody who has had. Um, uh, uh, earmarked for you know escalating violence, and this was his opportunity mm-hmm. to take it one step further. So, in the fourteen years since, did he stop escalating? What, what's he doing now? Is he just working, or she, working on covering up the crime? Where, what does that type of person do in the meantime? If they'd been well, escalating, unfortunately, they do other crimes and, and abduct other people. I mean, if you look at somebody like Israel Keys, he moved around the country and he would only commit a crime. He was a very opportunistic guy, and he he told us in the interrogations, which, by the way, you can see on YouTube, um, 
you know, he said, as long as I kept myself random to the location and random to the victim, I knew I couldn't get caught. Because when you think about a homicide investigation, you always start with known people from the victim. If it's a woman, a married woman, you look at the husband, you look at a boyfriend, you look at, you know, whatever, a stalker. Um, uh, or if you, if all of those don't check out, then you look at the place where the person was murdered or found and somebody that's connected to that place. Um, if you're random to the person and random to the place, it's almost impossible. And that's what Keyes knew, and that's why he was successful for so many years. Um, and he knew that. That was his strategy. And so what he did was he kept what he called kill kits buried around the country. And when he got a call, he was this traveling kind of contractor guy. When he got a call from a buddy, he said, hey, I'm building a house in New Hampshire. Can you come up for a month and help me put up the framing and whatever? You know, he'd have a kill kit there, and, you know, he'd spend a month there, and three days before he was about to head back home, he would randomly select a, a target and go and dig up that kill kit, which, by the way, may have been buried five years earlier. Um, and then he would use that material to murder that person, and there was no connection that he had either to the place or to the person. And so, you know, that's, you know, so you could have somebody like that. They might not even be in that area. They might have been not from that area or not in that area anymore. And so if you don't have a connection to, you know, that lonely stretch of road up there, you know, that makes it that much harder to find. This person could be in jail on other crimes. He could be living in another part of the country having done this to other people. I mean, there's an infinite number of possibilities uh, that somebody like this could have, you know, could have moved on. I mean, Keyes knew once he got away, he knew that, you know, if he wasn't caught within, you know, hours, weeks, months of a murder, he was gone. He was done. He was he was clear. How long did uh, Keyes uh, operate as a serial killer? He said, I think he did his first uh, rape at 16 or 17. I think his first murder at 19, and he did it. He was captured at 34. So he did 14 or 15 years. He gave us 11 homicides um, that he had done, and he was playing this cat and mouse game where he would only give us a few at a time. And I think he probably was good for you know dozens, if you know, if not more. And but he hung himself uh, at at eleven. We we were able to get eleven confirmed out of him before he hung himself in jail. That motherfucker. So I I, I can't yeah. tell what's more disturbing the the talk about Israel Keys or or the uh, the talk about the woman who chained herself to uh, something and and committed suicide and there was evidence of her trying to unchain herself after yeah. she had already. Mm -hmm gone to the bottom of the lake went to a couple dark places <laughs> yeah. jesus christ um yeah they all come back to me at some point <laughs> in my nightmares right jesus i mean i can imagine i have one more quick thing uh, about israel uh, keys just, yeah i just, just want to i want to ask a question oh, about good, israel good. keys too yeah you go um now this guy was smarter than most murderers right who, who israel keys yeah like m most murderers yeah. don't consciously uh think about that no stuff, absolutely right? he studied other serial killers and he he had a definite consciousness of how to avoid capture. Absolutely. How the hell do you catch that guy? Yeah. You know, if you look at his his his, his interrogations on YouTube, he he laughs about it. He knew he made a mistake. He made a mistake with Samantha by by um, keep holding on to her debit card and making a ransom demand. He had never done that before. Um, but he was times were tough. He was living with uh, his new girlfriend was a nurse anesthetist. She made good money. He his contract business was was down. He wasn't making money. He 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 needed money. He felt like he was being emasculated, and so he um, he needed money. And he kept her debit card and took a picture of her. Um, he sewed her eyelids open and took a picture to make it look like she was still alive. Um, 
and he made a ransom demand, and that that's that's that was the key mistake that he made because then we had contact with him. We were now communicating between us and him on her cell phone, and so we tracked the, the movements, we tracked his his withdrawals of the ATM money, um, and ultimately we saw a trail going down the West Coast across the South. West, uh, and he was, uh, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, and he was ultimately caught in Texas. So his criminal behavior escalated. That's basically how he got he got sloppy. Well, I mean, because it, of he made a mistake. He never killed for money, and he just in this case needed money. And if he hadn't used that ATM card, it's I don't know what the chances are that we would have um, caught him. I, I'd like to hope we would have anyway, um, but certainly the way we caught him was through his his use of her ATM card after he made that, um, you know, that ransom demand. We've heard uh, different stories about where he was during the time of Moore's disappearance, um, and but nothing nothing very concrete as far as I know. Uh, do you happen to know where he was during uh, February no, of 2004? because that was so many years ago. I mean, yeah. I just, I just, we were called in on, on what we thought was his last homicide, although Gudevin Sustern did an hour on him after the fact, and I saw it and then got chills a little bit because um, on that path that I just explained through Arizona, New Mexico, into Texas, um, there's there's at least one missing woman along that trail that is unsolved that kind of fits his M.O. Um, we'll never know whether that's attributed to him or not, but, you know, so, so Samantha, we always refer to her as, her as his last victim, um, but actually she may not be. Wow. Wow. I don't I didn't want to go. I didn't expect that. But um, really, really informative stuff. I don't want mm-hmm. I mean, actually, any anything that can be just like thrown against the wall. Right. You know, if, if people right. want to, if people want to look into uh, keys and, and find out what his where his path was and, you know, feel free. You know, it's like anything Please. that you can right. talk about mm-hmm. and dismiss is uh, is certainly welcome. Um, I just have one quick final uh, final thing. Um what we're doing right now and and the TV show uh, and actually what we just did with uh, Keys and saying if you want to you know look into it on your own, how important is this as as law enforcement to you to to know that there are people out there who are approaching it like this or approaching cold cases like this? Well, I mean, it's 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 usually valuable on, you know, solving these cases, because like I said earlier, I mean, a lot of departments don't have the resources. If you a lot of places don't have cold case units anymore, you know, you know, and they're growing. The number of them are growing. But still, there are places, a lot of places that don't have don't have cold case uh, units. And when the case goes cold, it's just not looked at anymore. And so, you know, justice in that case is is, is not going to be found unless it's picked up by podcasts and by groups like you guys and groups like the people that listen to your show um the justice is never going to happen in those cases because you know it just, the, the the resources have to be directed to you know more current cases that have more promising leads you know because there's just not enough detectives to assign full time to all these cases it's just you know, it's, it's just a that's just a, a numbers thing
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.